Tonight, we're going to continue on with this uh, series on overcoming, word of introduction to the introduction, that overcoming does not mean that you find out what the sinful pattern is in your life, or the sin, the sinful pattern, and that once you have identified it, then you can confess it, and then you can move on to the next sin and deal with it. Um, It's not quite that simple that let's take the matter of anger into which we will look tonight. We have, even as believers, we we have residual sin that we have to deal with. When we come to Christ, sin is not the ruling power that it was before we came to Christ. We were regenerated. The Spirit of God came to indwell us at the moment of the new birth. We became new creatures. We have new impulses, new desires. And sin, as I said, doesn't have the ruling, controlling, unrelenting chokehold on us that it did. But that doesn't mean that we do not have to deal with sin for the continuation of our life here on earth. We do. And let me add this that we do find that as a Christian, and perhaps we recognize this depending on how early in life you became a Christian, but still we found that, and we would have to admit, that there are what I call sins of choice. where We have the potential for any sin. We can be jealous, we can be envious, uh, we can be gluttonous, we can, any number of temptations are out there for us to respond to. And if I may liken it to going to an ice cream parlor, you know, to Brewster's or something, and you look out there and let's say you as a family go in, everyone looks at all of those various cartons, cases of ice cream, And you've got one or two that you tend to go to before, you know, that's your first choice. Now, I know it's very, um, it's probably not the best analogy to liken sin to ice cream, but in one sense it is, because the reason we sin is because we like it. And if we didn't like it, then we wouldn't go to it. But this is the way sin works, is that we do have some sins or a set of sins to which we may more often than other going to other sins, we'll go to that one. So I may very well be speaking here tonight to one, two, three, four, five. I have no idea of knowing where anger would be your go-to. Often it's the one area where you trip uh, quite a bit. You've, and I guess I need to break that down for us just for a moment. That the, if you're thinking, well, no, that's not my go-to sin, I, you may even have gotten yourself to reasoning to the place where I actually don't get angry all that much. I'm a fairly easygoing uh, person. I get along with people. I don't, when I get in difficult situations, I don't put my fist through the wall. I don't bang things. I don't yell. I don't scream. I don't use profanity in traffic. I I don't throw my finger at people in traffic. I can't remember when I've ever been guilty of road rage. All right, if you're that kind of person, 
course, there are other people here who would like to talk to you and interview you and, and know you a little bit better. But because you may not be the kind of person who's not given to outward uh, volcanic expressions of anger, we would say uh, temper tantrums, uh, temper fits, that doesn't mean that anger is not an issue and a problem. And this is why we, where we all get in is that we find other ways to express our anger. You may be the kind of person who tends more to implode. You just put it inside and you keep it inside and you bear grudges. You are resentful and you've become comfortable with grudges and resentment. And nobody is able, perhaps, uh, unless somebody really close to you, they can't see it as readily as an explosive type of anger. So it's possible to be self-deceived and think that one you don't have an issues with anger. Well, what I want to do tonight is smoke us all out a little bit to um, bring us out into dealing with ourselves and present to you uh, how anger can be overcome. This is, could be a much larger study with great profit if, um, if, we, if we could. I'm, I'm going to be referring to a book. I'm going to read a little bit something from it here in just a minute. It's called Uprooting Anger. This is by Robert D. Jones, Biblical Help for a Common Problem. This is one of the better books that um, and I'm aware of that uh, deals with the subject of anger in a thoroughly biblical way. And if, well, I'll come back to say that uh, more about it later on, but uh, Jerry Bridges says, Biblical, Practical, Masterful. And I recommend the book. And <clears throat> what we'd like to do, though, to begin with, is just get uh, warmed up. And I want to take you to something that Jesus said about anger. Can we do that? All right. Turn with me to Matthew and chapter 5, please, and verse 21. <clears throat> and we will look at uh, some introductory issues here that are really important to this subject of anger. Let's see what Jesus said about it. Now, while you're turning there, I'm going to have to, since the subject of anger is so huge, and that's one of the reasons I referenced this little book, it will take you to areas that we're not going to be able to go in and fully develop and explore tonight. So I don't want you to get the impression that I'm giving some kind of exhaustive study on this in the Bible. It's, it's worthy of actually a, a, a lengthened course of study on it. But I want to make a couple of th uh, two statements. And one has to do with God the Father. The other has to do with the person of Christ. The first is is that God is a God of holy anger. And what's really striking about the subject of anger is that when anger is mentioned in the Bible, it's most often mentioned in reference to God. God is a God of holy anger. Exodus 4, verse 14, 1 Peter 1 and 16, and but his anger is perfect, it's pure, and it's an ongoing, settled opposition to evil. Now, that's going to enter into something we're going to 
uh, look at a little later on, distinguishing between right anger and wrong anger, sinful anger and non-sinful anger. But God's anger is perfect, pure, and it's a settled opposition to evil. It's just. He sees it. He sees evil as needs to be seen and responds accordingly. Second thing I'm going to say is with regard to the person of Christ and anger. Jesus Christ became angry at the hypocrisy and legalism of the religious system of his day. And we, uh, I'm going to come back to this again when we get to righteous anger, for we want the model, we have a perfect model of what righteous anger is. We may say righteous indignation. What's that look like? Uh, it's, we want to consider it. Um, now, there is a little caveat I have to offer here with this righteous anger, is that there is a temptation to want to relegate our anger to righteous anger. So we say, hey, that's me. I am, I really get ticked off at evil and bad things and such. And, and we, if we aren't careful then, we can begin to, uh, turn more fire sinful anger into, and call it, uh, righteous anger and it's not really. All right. We'll go there. But I wanted to make those two statements with regard to God the Father in anger and God the Son. Now, I want you to follow with me. I'm going to read this, and then I'm going to make two statements. And I'm, I, I believe these. I don't have the handout that you have, but I think you see the two points that we're going to develop here that come out of this text. So follow with me while I read. Matthew 5 and verse 21. Part of the Sermon on the Mount, interestingly right on the heels of giving the key text for the Sermon on the Mount in verse 20. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. So what is this surpassing righteousness? Exhibit A. You have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not commit commit murder. And whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. He's referring to the Jewish civil court and that there were legal proceedings to deal with such. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever shall say to his brother, Raka shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. That's the the Sanhedrin. And whoever shall say, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. I don't want to make, now we're not going to be able to do an exposition of these verses, but I do want to make these two following points. First is this, is that the law of murder, there was a law of murder that was interpreted by the Pharisees. And what the Pharisees had done is that they had reduced the command to just an act of murder and its civil consequences, which became a convenient loophole. Loophole. The Pharisees were ingenious at creating loopholes. I think I told you the story about W.C. Fields, didn't I? Does anybody here know W.C. Fields? Well, if you don't, 
uh, this may not be as effective, but he was a, it was an old uh, movie actor and comedian. He had a way with words. And he was not known as a, not known as a Christian man, as a reprobate. And somebody saw him one day and he was reading his Bible. And they were taken back and they says, why are you reading your Bible? And he had a little way of talking that I'm trying to imitate here. And he would say, looking for loopholes, looking for loopholes. Some people read their Bibles looking for loopholes. The Pharisees had created these devices and they thought that they were being righteous in doing so. But they had narrowed down the act of murder to certain situations and conditions. All right, secondly, consider the law of murder as interpreted by Jesus in verses 22 to 26. And the law really points to his own teaching, namely that the root of murder is anger. Anger is a, is a murderous, is murderous in principle. It's the, it's the, it's the, where it springs up. So surpassing righteousness of which Jesus has spoken in Matthew 5 and 20 is not only refraining from the act of murder, but it's dealing with one's anger, which is the root of murder. I got to get down inside and deal with that. The fact that I don't, I don't take a, a, a gun and shoot someone and kill them doesn't mean that I have not been judged. I'm not being judged by the law. The angry person will be subject to judgment, but it's presupposed that it's going to be God's judgment. So, and then he gives two examples, that when we stoop to insult another human being, name-calling, we're exposed to the counsel of God as well as to the fire of hell. So it's telling a lot about us. Are you a believer? And why are you so free and quick and easy to use words that are demeaning and which are an attack upon the image of God in another person? We are accountable to God is the point that he's making with this. Now, with that said, I want us to uh, go through this overcoming anger along the following lines. And when we get through, if you wish to have some uh, discussion, questions, we'll, we'll do so. But let's proceed now. Based on that, let's go at this overcoming anger. I begin by saying that overcoming anger requires an understanding of what anger is. Let's try to fish around for a definition. And I've done a little fishing and I'll uh, uh, offerings on what it is. I've cobbled one together, which uh, takes up some pieces of the definitions I found, but I put it this way, that anger is an intense response of displeasure against perceived evil. It is, and I actually I just came across this uh, another definition. I was reading through Jones' book, and he, he quotes another source, And here's another definition. Quote, it is a hot displeasure of the heart or soul which is experienced in response to something you perceive to be wrong and which calls for just retribution 
or repayment. Hot displeasure. In the first chapter in Robert Jones' book, Uprooting Anger, he breaks it down into this. This is the way, I mean, he has a longer definition, and he puts it this way. And I'm going to try to explain just briefly what he means by this. So here it is. Did I put this in your notes? I'm not sure if I did or not. Yeah, okay. It's an, he, Jones says that it's an active response a whole person response, a response against something, a negative moral judgment we make, and a judgment against a perceived evil. Now, here's what he means. First of all, it's an active response, that it is something we do, and that it's whole person. That is, it encompasses our beliefs, it encompasses our desires, our feelings, our actions. So it's not just a little piece of me. It's me. When I get angry, I am angry. And then he indicates that it's a response against something. Making a, distinguish the, a distinction that it's not, I'm not caused to get angry. Like we fondly may say, well, he or she made me angry. And there we betray our lack of understanding of what anger is and who is finally responsible. He also says, fourthly, that it's a negative moral judgment. In other words, it's a mental mental death penalty, a verdict against the guilty. That's why Jesus says that it's at the root of murder. It is a mental death penalty verdict against the person That's perceived to be guilty. And then fifthly, it's a judgment against perceived evil. That our anger comes up out of our value system. What makes me angry may not make you angry. So you and I could look at someone else and see how they get angry in certain situations, conspicuously so. We could draw some comfort from that. (laughs) thinking, wow, whoa, that's not me. But what are your set of values? What really ticks you off? What gets you angry? can be different from the next person. Now, in this uh, coming to an understanding of anger, we make a distinction between right anger and wrong anger. Time doesn't allow me to go into a full explanation of this, You're familiar with these terms, aren't you? Righteous anger and sinful anger and non-sinful anger. All right, let me give a a brief overview of it. That there is wrong anger, which is the one that we're here to address tonight, sinful anger. What's involved in it? Rage. Like if you, I mean, if you want to be able to identify your anger, if you're you're wondering if your anger is righteous anger, well, think of it this way. Is it rage, a lack of control, hostile action, words, um, internalized bitterness? Those are characteristics of sinful and our unrighteous anger. Now, I want to do something here that I've not included in your notes and I'm going to accelerate through some things here, but I, I want to 
say some things of, with regard to how the Bible warns against sinful anger. I, I want to keep this on the track, overcoming. I'm, I'm not here tonight just to lay guilt on us for anger. You know, we say, yeah, you're thinking, I know, I get angry and I need to deal with it. And I would like to come to the end of this tonight to have helped us all saying, all right, I've got at least a fresh idea of what I've got to do to deal with myself. However, I do want to go through some of the things that Scripture says with why it warns against sinful anger. First of all, it cannot achieve the righteousness of God. James 1 in verse 20. I said I'm going to accelerate along through these, and they're not in your notes. It may be explosive in nature or the slow burn, but in either case, it must be put off. Ephesians 4, verse 31. Thirdly, it's a work of the flesh, according to Galatians 5, 19 through 21. It's a work of the flesh. comes up from the sinful heart. It's not something alien to me. It is part of me. According to Proverbs 29, 11, it's the mark of a fool. I'm playing the fool in anger, in sinful anger. Fourthly, the right, the person given to sinful anger is to be avoided. They're dangerous, according to Proverbs 22, 24. Watch out, hanging around angry people and being in association with them can get you into trouble. I will tell you, there's probably a many a young man and young woman serving prison time right now. You know why? Because they were with people who were given to anger and then they became accomplices in maybe a robbery or a murder something where there may be a revenge killing or some vengeful act that became was a felony. Scripture warns of that. Fifthly, sinful anger brings its own punishment, according to Proverbs 19.19. 19. In other words, sinful anger, you'll always be in trouble. And there are people, those people who are given to chronic is continuous, sinful anger with whom it is a, an ongoing problem, they're always in trouble, always in trouble in relationships. They just, in their wake, they leave all kinds of ruin, wreckage, relationships, bridges burned. Sixthly, the person given to sinful anger is highly vulnerable and without protection from assault. Proverbs 25, 28. I don't have time to read these texts, but Proverbs 25, 28. Highly vulnerable. I'll say a little bit more about that later on as to when it comes to the matter of vulnerable, I mean emotionally, physically, and so on. All right, I'm just going to make, I have a long list, and I'm going to shorten it up. I'm going to give you just a couple more. We'll get back on the main road. Parents are warned in Scripture not to provoke their children to wrath. Ephesians 5, 4, Colossians 3, 21. The father is singled out. 
who is apt to have an inclination to do this more readily, to provoke children to wrath, to frustrate by over-disciplining or not disciplining at all and producing passive anger. I was with someone just recently, and they said we were talking about these kinds of things, and they said, well, that was my dad. That is, didn't put any boundaries out there, didn't put any standards out there. So they just thought it was free range in the living. And that created anger. And then I'll, I'll mention this one other. That sinful anger leads to strife and contention. Oh, this is all over the place in Proverbs 29, 22, 30, 33. Strife and, and contention. I will tell you, if you want to have, you want to see a congregation get ripped to shreds, a church that can experience great injury and spend a lot of its energy and time, just have, well, it only it really takes one, uh, a person who has a hair trigger with a temper, and I will tell you, you're always cleaning up a mess. Now, that's not to say that people who have a hair-trigger temper have to find their own place in life and don't. <laughs> you love them, you help them, you work on them, you work with them. But uh, I continue, I've been here about 40, I don't know, 43 years. I've seen some examples of this in the parking lot, and they're not pretty stories. And they can come, sometimes come after a sermon. The preacher can think, well, we put the word out today. And then there will be an episode in the parking lot or on the way home in the car. Well, all right, I'm going to have to get back on the main road and come back and consider the next step in this. Um, all right, I think that's all that we can say tonight with regard to righteous anger and with regard to, uh, or did I say enough about righteous anger? I don't know that I did. I'm just reminding myself and looking at some notes I have in front of me. Let me say just a couple things about righteous anger, because there's something to be said for it. That in righteous anger, you're guided for, by a desire for God's justice. That's what you want in righteous anger. And, and I do need to stop and say something about righteous anger, because if I don't, you'll think that all anger is sinful and that you'll be frustrated because you're going to see injustice and evil and there's going to be an angry response and then so you're going to feel guilty when you shouldn't be guilt, feeling guilt. But guided, righteous anger is guided by the desire for God's justice and it will be, it will involve, get, uh, excuse me, it will result in getting involved in a remedy. Remedy. Get that? That's where righteous anger goes. It focuses on God, his kingdom, his rights, his concerns. And it's accompanied by other godly qualities. And it expresses itself in godly ways. So if you're just a little fuzzy as to what righteous anger is, I hope that will help. But I, I've got to stop and tell you a little something about righteous anger. And how it has to be managed so carefully and delicately. And if it isn't, it can ruin a church. Here's what I mean. I was, um, I'm a radio guy in the car. 
I'm always fishing for knowledge. So I'm I'm looking for knowledge. Um, And I just happened to catch a conversation. I was actually I was coming to staff meeting and I turned it on. And there's a very good talk program on in the mornings from like about I think it's six to nine or seven to nine. Bill Bennett used to be the secretary of education. It's a very good program. He's, he's a very calm, uh, intelligent, experienced. And he had a couple of younger men. They were talking about the place of anger in politics. And they were saying, uh, some of the following, that anger can be, in, in the best sense of the right anger, it can be motivational. It can be instructive. That's like maybe some a candidate for office is trying to gin up his base, and he wants to come out and you know just give it to him and and kind of go on that driving force of being angry and look what they're doing, look what they're doing, look what they said, look at this legislation. Well, and so the conversation went along to say, well, it can serve a purpose. However, now they're just talking about politics. This is this was not a a theological uh, Christian discussion, but I'm going to I'm going to hitchhike on it. But they're saying, however, a particular political candidate who wants to use anger to fire up his base, those are already committed. They don't need to be convinced. We're with you. Let's go. When you seek to reach out to a wider, well, we'd say the voting public, and you seek to get into a position where you can exercise governance. You want to be elected to office. You just don't want to stand in a room and just vent. (laughs) That there has to be the moderating approach to people. I would call it the the response of of ideas, of uh, concern, of compassion, of um, just, just a wide assortment of affect values, good things, the, the common good. What are we for? Not just what are we against and what are we angry at, but what are we for? What do we want to do? Well, okay, I, come, I get to thinking about this, and it sets off some thought which uh, goes went this way. Do you know a church has got to be careful? Are there things that we can be angry about? I don't know about you, but you know my antenna's up, and I'm looking around, uh, and I see things make injustice. And I, personally, I think that, that the more in touch you are with a uh, with biblical truth, and you know the Bible, you know what it teaches, you know what God's standards are, and you have, uh, hopefully, you know, I mean, it should be humbly saturated with humility, but you just see. That's wrong. That's not right. What they're saying, what they're advocating, that's, that's moral idiocy. And are there plenty of things that we can see out there that do require a, right, a righteous anger? I say yes. But you see the danger. If you don't manage it, if you don't take care, and I'm thinking of a congregation as a whole here, that you can people who are just generally become people 
with righteous anger, and Jesus said, be angry and sin not, and let the sun go down on your wrath, it can easily go to seed and turn into sinful anger if it doesn't meet the criteria that I just spoke of with regard to right anger. And you know what you can end up with? And you had the best intentions, and you were for the right things, and you're against evil. By the way, you'll find this borne out when you look at some of those churches in Revelation 2 and 3 as to why they got in themselves and just said, you're doing this, this, and this, but you don't do this, is that you can end up with a lot of angry people, an angry congregation. And I'll, let me go in, and so I'm, I'm taking a little longer on this, but I thought it, it's important. I thought the person of Christ, he's mentioned, I can point to at least four occasions where there is some anger mentioned with regard to the person of Christ. When he cleansed the temple twice, the beginning and the end of his public ministry. Mark in chapter 3, where he's in the synagogue and the uh, man with a withered hand. And the scribes and the Pharisees are just livid that you would even think about healing somebody on the Sabbath. Jesus was angry. They could look the, the depths to which legalism uh, and a lack of compassion will go. says he was angry. Then there is the occasion. Um, actually, a couple more come into my mind as I go through this. There's the occasion in Matthew 23 where Jesus unloads on the Pharisees. Woe to you, woe to you, woe to you, woe to you. And he just excoriates the system. With some righteous anger. Uh, another one comes to mind. I think that when Jesus came up to the tomb, when Lazarus and the family, he comes upon that funeral, that death, and they're weeping. They're, there's, there's, there is uh, uh, grief. And there's, some interest, there's an interesting cluster. I've studied these uh, quite at length. Interesting cluster of Greek terms that the English troubled in spirit, distressed, about three or four terms used there. I think that part of what was going on there is that, yes, Jesus was grieving, because that's the place where it says Jesus wept. But I think part of what was going on was anger at saying, look what sin has done. Death and the grief and the sorrow of loss in this world. I think Jesus felt that. Righteous anger, the consequences of sin, the consequence of sins, death. All right, all that to say this. And while we were discussing this in the staff meeting, Justin comes up with a statement that he makes in passing that I thought was, just gave me a mental uh, picture. Yet the people of Jesus' day, I'm quite sure they didn't say, Jesus, there goes an angry man. Does that fit with you, what you know of Jesus in the Gospels? Was he an angry man? If you had met Jesus and said, watch out for him, whoo, has he got a temper? I don't think so. That which is spoken of more than anything else with regard to the person of Christ is compassion. And, all right, I'm going to leave it at that. That was an offshoot that took, uh, uh, well, I... I thought we needed to go there because I just know that it's, I think, 
I think churches that believe the Bible and who have strong convictions and a clear Christian world and life view and are really settled and know what the Bible teaches, that could easily become a blind spot for us. Okay, I'll leave it at that. All right, let's, let's, let's step on it. Secondly, overcoming anger requires repentance. Repentance. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me, know my anxious thoughts, and see if there be any hurtful way in me, and lead me in the everlasting way. Now, if you are so bold as to pray that prayer from Psalm 139, get ready. The Lord may very well bring into, into your way, in your path, situations where you are going to face some hot displeasure over something that's happened. Watch it. Well, why did, might it reveal? So there must be in repentance as a Christian an, an assessment of our desires. We've got to do, by the, by the enablement of the Spirit, there has to be an examination. What are those times when I lose control? Um, what is... Um, is self being served? Uh, what is it that, and I, I, I want to go through something here, just if you will, I mean, what I do with this? Here it is. Uh, I'm going to go back to this book by Robert Jones because he has a very helpful rest, uh, list, and I'm, I'm not going to comment on them. We don't have time to pursue it. But he has a very helpful list of some uh, the heart causes of, of, excuse me, the anger and the way in what, yes, here it is. This is the way our culture def- will define the, the theories that define the cause of anger. And my, the reason I'm attaching it here to repentance is that when you deal with anger, be careful where you go for counsel to get help. What you read, what, if you go and sit with a person to get counsel, be careful. He lists these following six ways in which our culture, it's the theories about the cause of anger. Inner, unconscious, psychodynamic forces. Childhood trauma or chronic bad nurturing. Present sufferings. Unmet emotional needs. Psychological factors. Satanic attacks. You see what those six have in common? Is that if there's going to be genuine repentance, there's got to be a coming to terms with the fact that I'm responsible. I can't blame it on something else. Did you grow up in a home where there was a lot of anger? Did you have a daddy who was given to temper fits and anger? A mother who carried grudges, was resentful? And then as you come on into life, adult life, are you pulled to say, well, I know my parents created this. Don't go there. Recognize what you may have been set up for in temptation. But repentance is the point that I want to make. So I'll say this and we'll move on. That there's got to be a repentant spirit. Lord, what incidents What are those things? Lord, what pattern? I need help here, Lord. Lord, am I angry at you? And you know what? 
a lot of anger can be traced right to there. You're ticked off at God. Something didn't happen the way you wanted it to happen. There was a disappointment. There was some failure, some suffering, some pain. And God then is the one at whom we're ticked at, ticked off at. Thirdly, overcoming anger requires the assumption of responsibility. The assumption of responsibility. So here's where I've got to assess my desires. I've spoken to this already under the repentance issue, but what do you crave? What do you really want? Um, What do you lust after? What do you wish for? What desires do you serve and obey? In what situations do you feel pressured or tense? When you're pressured, where do you turn? When do you get mad? Remember the last time you were mad? Why'd you get mad? What are the things that really tick you off? Now, here, I'm going to go back uh, to uh, Jones and his book. This is a very helpful little book, and he has a discussion of this under the title, Is Your Desire Ruling You? That is, what you want so bad then sets you up for anger. What is it that you really want? He gives two stories. I'll just give the one. Time's running out here. There's a couple of the. He puts it this way under the heading, Is Your Desire Ruling You? Um, or perhaps you have looked forward to shopping at a local Baskin-Robbins ice cream store to surprise your family by picking up a gallon of mint chocolate chip, the all-time favorite of you and your family. You look forward not only to the creamy mint flavor and the sweet chocolate bits swirled throughout, but even more to the appreciative looks of your your family's faces. As you drive to the store, not only do you think about it, you begin to salivate, as I am now. (laughs) Question, how will you respond if you find that the store is out of mint chocolate chip ice cream. I suspect that your response will differ from the person who is content with any flavor. I goes on to develop that thought, but do you, you see, get the drift here of where we've got to work with how to work with our anger? Fifth, fourthly, overcoming anger requires the movement to reconciliation. That is, the commitment to the pursuit of relational peace. And if you're going to have relational peace, it requires uprooting personal anger. What are your relationships like? You out of sorts with somebody? No, I don't mean that even in a home where it's husband and wife, one's living in one end of the house and the other other end of the house. Or I do know a home where... (laughs) It's, it's a crazy situation. It's a home in a city in southern Mississippi. I've seen the house. Is that there are two sisters who live in this house. It's the strangest looking thing. It is one house. It's about two, two stories at least. And it's been cut in two. 
you, you can see that uh, <laughs> they've gone to the trouble of getting it sectioned off. And there's this narrow split in this house. It's two ladies, two sisters. They couldn't get along, and they had their house cut in two. One lives on one side, one lives on the other side. I've seen it. It's in Hattiesburg, Mississippi. All right. Anger can take you to some strange arrangements in relationships. Anger towards someone. It can lead you to leaving a church. It can lead you to leaving a spouse. It can cause children to leave their parents and run away. It can cause any number of things that are, we would say, would be irreconciled relationships. So what is necessary? Confession, renunciation of the anger. Start with God. Go to him. Lord, this is not right. And I've got to go to get after the root, this personal anger, in order to get the reconciliation right. So reconciliation with individuals is not simply some kind of just moving the deck furniture around and changing your seating or saying hello and doing, you can do behavioral things and smile. You know, some people can really, are really good at hiding their anger. They've, they've learned how that socially it's embarrassment. You're not going to come to church and show yourself. So they can really hide their anger. They can smile and shake hands. Oh, underneath there is this cauldron. So I say what is necessary is go to God in humility and say, I've got to deal with this if there's going to be a right, if there's going to be reconciliation. Fifthly, overcoming anger requires revisiting the promises of God. Revisiting the promises of God. And I would put it this way. I'll be brief here. What is the gospel? Rest in God's provision of forgiving and enabling grace. Jesus died for hotheads. Thank you, Lord, because we've all been a hothead somewhere along the way. <laughs> it may not be your, may, may your go-to response, but go to God for, go to the gospel and rethink what is the gospel. Sixthly, overcoming anger requires biblical reconnaissance. Biblical reconnaissance. I mean, you've got, you got, we got work to do. We need to establish and carry out a workable plan to deal with temptation. Now, here I'm thinking about really going after the, if, if you, when you're working to deal with a pattern of anger, you want to know, where am I apt to be tempted to be angry? Do you know? Now, I, I'm not saying I know myself perfectly. Only God does. But I can anticipate situations where I, my, my temptation to be angry is going to be pretty high. I've lived with myself long enough to, to make some guesses. <laughs> some guesses. All right, let me offer some quickly here. First of all, avoid unnecessary occasions that tempt you to show anger. Avoid unnecessarily, uh, unnecessary 
occasions. Are you into a discussion and you're just being challenged or somebody's disagreeing with you? Your spouse is not agreeing with you? Do you need to find a moment to step aside, create a closet, as it were, and deal with you? You may think, and you can do it right on the spot. Lord, I know that I've been in this situation before where my wife, husband, they're disagreeing with me, or somebody is, and I've lost it, and I have, it's not been pretty. And God, I need your grace so that I can listen to what I'm about to listen to and that I can be controlled and gracious in my response. Oh, that can happen in seconds. You don't have to go to a weekend retreat somewhere at uh, Jekyll Island. You can deal it right there, with there. Secondly, remove yourself when possible, as quickly as possible, from explosive situations. Recognize frustration's beginnings. Leave the scene. Cool off. I kids being involved in sports in many different ways through the years. What you may need to do in a basketball game, now we don't have a church basketball team anymore. We used to. We used to have a softball team. But you may find yourself um, where, you know, somebody has really been putting it to you under the boards. Boy, they're cutting you off. You go to do a layup, and they cut in front of you, and you, you do, so you get it going with a guy. And uh, maybe you need to take yourself out. All right, find your, find your version of that, if, ladies, that doesn't resonate with you. But uh, find your, what is it? What do you need to remove yourself from? Uh, all right, I can't go further with that. Thirdly, in the midst of the temptation, ask Christ for strength. And recite key verses of biblical truths you've memorized. Harsh word stirs up anger. What is it? Soft word turns away wrath. Memorize some verses. Um, set a guard over my lips, O oh Lord. So recite the verses. Manage yourself. Deal with yourself. Have scripture at your fingertips so that the Spirit of God can move it front and center. Fourthly, enlist mature believers to pray for you, counsel you, hold you accountable, and be available during and after crises. Now, I say be available because a person who's given to anger can easily fall into this self-defense mode, which means retreat and get away from anyone who's even going to come close to whom or with whom I may have to answer to for my behavior. So the tendency would be to run. So that's why I say enlist mature believers to pray for and be available during and after crises. And then you may want to keep a log or a journal of personal anger incidents. I don't know. Do you, do you, is this something that regularly occurs? The anger records the situation. What are your responses? What can you find out something about the underlying beliefs and motives? That's what I'm saying. Do some work. All right, and then finally, seventh. Overcoming anger requires the resolve to live by the demands of Jesus. I'm, I'm just going, I'm going to do a, a dash here. With these, each of these would require some, a lot of development, but think of the demands of Jesus. 
Jesus said, look, here, are you a disciple of Christ? If you wish to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Let's, let's consider. Uh, first of all, know what it is to love your enemies. Hmm. I think loving my enemy may have something to do with anger. Ooh, I would think it would. What's that? What's that love look like toward people that I don't, that people that want to harm me or that I'm having a problem liking? Uh, live by the truth of the fallen sparrow. <coughs> Matthew 10, 28, 31. Jesus knows when any bird falls. And I think that means in the context he's saying, when any bird flies and comes down to rest, whether it's on the power line or it's in the yard. It's not just talking about a bird that shot out at the sky. Wow. Now that is some knowledge. The theological word for that is omniscience. And that the point is in that passage is, does the Lord know about my circumstances? Does he know why I've suffered this loss or this disappointment? Is he in control? Or if you're like me, I can, oh, I'll give, I'll, I'll take a little risk here. I'm in a project and I'm trying to fix something and I break something while I'm trying to fix something. Oh, do I have problems with that? I am such a time conscious person and that's part of my problem. That I've got, my, I've only got so much time to get this done, so I got to get back and study what the Bible teaches about anger. <laughs> it's a preacher problem. That I can get angry. I can then, you know, it can really get nasty and ugly. You can then end up doing things out of the uh, rush to a solution and anger, and then you break something, and then you get a bigger problem. And it just dominoes. But you've never been there. You probably have a hard time figuring out what I'm saying on that. But how it, uh, how it can happen. Well, you can do what I did one time. I was trying to put a piece of glass in. I'd, there was a broken pane of glass. So I was going to fix this broken pane of glass. And so I go to the glass guy and I give him my measurements. And I'm trying to get it in. And I crack it. I go back, I get another piece, I put it in, and I crack it. Third time, Beth, could you go with these measurements to the glass guy? <laughs> she went, and the guy smiled and said, has your husband been in here? <laughs> but, oh my. All right, deny yourself. Take up your cross and slay the dragon of pride. Ooh. It's ugly. Enjoy the fruit that comes from abiding in Christ. I'm sorry for having to be so brief on those latter statements, but I'm over time. This is such a massive subject, and I will uh, leave you with this. Uh, I hope that it, this much can be accomplished, that we all have to deal with anger. And I say, let's just pray right now. Lord, help us to take this. Maybe we've not been taking this as seriously as we should have. That we have temper tantrums when we're by ourselves and we think that no harm done. But yet, O oh Lord, we know that when we fail to control ourselves in isolation, that it creates the lack of control 
in the entirety of life. God, we need your help. We're helpless. We deceive ourselves. We need your grace. So, God, I pray as we move on out from this study tonight, we will exemplify your righteous anger and love for Christ's sake. In his name we pray. Amen. Thank you.